Realtor.com is making a stand for buyer representation, and you can too. Join Realtor.com in sharing the list of 111 things buyer's agents do. Visit Realtor.com slash buyer agent toolkit to help spread the word. Buyer agents are essential. So I think the confusion has always been in the year 2000, we had 2 million active listings. In the year 2005, we had 2.5. So during the housing bubble years, inventory was growing. So people just naturally think, well, if rates go lower, more inventory will come. That was because the credit boom back then, the exotic loan debt structures, people didn't have to worry about rates. Everybody could list their homes and they can purchase another house easily. After 2010, everything changed in housing. Welcome to the Real Trending Podcast, where your host, Tracy Belt, Editorial Director of Real Trends, interviews the brightest minds in real estate. Each week, brokerage leaders, top agents, team leaders, and industry experts join Tracy to share trends, their secrets to success, and the lessons they learn navigating this ever-changing industry. Before we begin, here's a word from our sponsor. Hi, this is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief of HW Media, and I'm talking to Ed Messman, CEO at Rook Capital, about their Shared Value Investment Program. Ed, what benefits do mortgage lenders get by offering the Shared Value Investment product? It ultimately allows mortgage lending officers to help more homebuyers get into homes. And it allows them also to be more strategic in how they think about financing solutions for those homebuyers that are really good home buyers. They just need just a little bit of help to get into a home by lowering the monthly payment. That's important right now. So thanks, Ed. And listeners, you can find out more at rook.capital. So welcome to the Real Trending Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds in real estate about leadership, business growth, trends, and strategy. I'm your host, Tracy Velt, Senior Director of Data and Content for HW Media, which includes Real Trends and Housing Wire. Today, I'd like to welcome Logan Matashami. He is the lead housing analyst for Housing Wire, and each week he releases an in-depth housing market tracker that offers readers the latest data on the economy and its impact on housing. So welcome, Logan. It is wonderful to be here, Tracy. Yeah. So I first, I want to start out because um, you did, uh, I don't know if it was an Instagram reel or um, you you responded to, Glenn Beck had a video and um There are a lot of recent concerns for many in the industry and around the country about the fall of the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency. And Glenn Beck recently put out this video that claims like America's elite may be intentionally trying to topple the U.S. dollar and it's going to be a collapse of the U.S. economy or a potential collapse of the U.S. economy. And it's pretty scary stuff. And I know that a lot of brokers have spoken to me about it. Um, You study the economy extensively. So can you give us a little bit of perspective and how it relates to the housing market. Okay, so the the dollar crash people have been here for decades. They're typically what I called gold bugs. They're uh, kind of like the old baby boomers that are sailing away. And the United States of America, this is how I've always talked about it. And I've written about this for many years. <clears throat> we are the biggest economy in the world. We have the biggest military in the world. We have $167 trillion of financial assets, just our country alone. You put the BRICs together, all their GDP times three, nothing. We have two friendly neighbors, two oceans uh, separating us from other countries. We are the biggest consumer base in the world, you know, in terms of our, our middle class income. 
no, we're not going to become Venezuela overnight. No, these uh, the propaganda on the U.S. dollar. I understand why Russian trolls would do it, or you know, maybe the Chinese government. You know, but you know, we are the most powerful economy in the world, and we're going to flex our muscle over this century. Uh, China, Japan, Europe, all those countries, their prime age labor force is declining. Ours isn't. Uh, so it, it, it's fear propaganda. And, you know, the, the world, if anything, our dollar gets too strong. If there's one concern, and, and I've talked about this many times, when the dollar gets too strong, bad stuff happens around the world. Uh, and let's have some other currency challenge the euro first b- before we talk about a dollar collapse. I mean, so it's it's always propaganda stuff. It's been here. It's part of the group. I've always said that, you know, our the, the all American bears have failed since 1790 for a reason. And they're buried in the grave and they don't ever typically change. Every decade, every century, there's always new demagogues and the whole dollar collapsing. We're going to become Venezuela. It, it is beyond preposterous and it's yellow journalism. It's, it's you know, uh, just for clickbait. But we are the wealthiest. I mean, maybe Cleopatra back when she was ruling Egypt might have been more wealthy than the U.S., but uh, no, we are the su- only superpower left, and uh, we're really going to flex our muscle. In fact, again, I'll, I'll always say this. My concern is always the dollar gets too strong at times and creates havoc. So I, the last thing I'm worried about is a dollar collapse and us becoming Venezuela and people fleeing the borders here in America. So, Yeah, well, it's interesting because I did hear um, J.D. Vance from Ohio. He has a different take on it. Um, I don't think he's as concerned about the um, U.S. dollar collapsing, but he also discussed that like if it did, let's just say it did, that it's it's not necessarily horrible news for the U.S. in some ways. Um, and I, I don't think he was actually talking about a collapse per se, but he was discussing, um, you know, the, the cost of things might be a little bit more for us in the U.S., um, but our exports would be um, cheaper and maybe I have that wrong. So you correct well, the, me the, on that. The, the theory is the U.S. could become a better uh, exporting economy because it could export. I mean, we we in a sense we export inflation and we uh, import deflationary things because cheaper things come to our country. Um, you know, throughout this century, people have been talking about federal debt and you know we're debasing our. Go check any U.S. dollar chart this century it's stronger and you know whenever the world has drama they're not going to other countries they're buying us bonds they're buying us dollars and that's never going to change we are we are godzilla versus a bunch of little cats we are so far ahead of everyone else the us middle class is so the income here is and the wealth here is is so enormous that it's not even a uh, a, a problem, a, a Venezuelan type of collapse would, you know, m- maybe in a nuclear holocaust, something where the structures of living is, 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 is different, but n- not, not on the economic sense. And I, I've been hearing this for, for so long. Uh, and it's, again, it's just designed to promote fear. Remember fear and wonder, right? If you create fear and you get people to wonder about it, you can get all the people into a room and what do we always say? Numbers are the closest thing to the handwriting of God. People, politicians, poets, they can all they can all lie, but numbers basically look at all the economic data in the US. We are the only superpower. And this is why 
All American bears have failed since 1790. <laughs> Myself and a few others in the past centuries, our job is to just take as many of these people out as we can. So in the next century and decades, other people will do it too. So let's get into the housing market, <laughs> which of course it all ties in in some ways. But um, you now do a housing market tracker. We have access to quite a bit of data, um, your your own proprietary data and modeling that you do, as well as Altos Research. Um, that housing market tracker is every week on Housing Wire for those of you who want to check it out. Why don't you just tell me first, like a basic overall view of what you're tracking and the information you're covering in it. So I've always believed that the housing sector uh, is very visible to people who look out in forward data. And what I mean by forward data, uh, we talk about let's purchase application number one, purchase applications for the Mortgage Banking Association. When it comes out, you know, uh, when if you track it weekly, you get an idea of how sales are going to look 30 to 90 days out. It's always worked since the 1990s. So that's something that I've been tracking over the uh, over the last uh, twelve years. It works. It, there's a very good relationship. Then you know, for me, it's where mortgage rates go. Right? What drives the housing market? You know, last year we had an unbelievable labor market. It didn't matter. Mortgage rates spiked up in the biggest parts in history. We had the biggest collapse in home sales. So where do I think the bond market is going to go? So every week I take a look at my forecast on the year, and then we take a look at the charts, where we th- what's going to happen in, in economic land, what data reports can move this. And we go off of that because if what one thing we've seen this year is we've had more positive purchase application data than negative. And the housing market, what I've always written about in the past five months, the housing market changed on November 9th. November 9th was the start of the forward-looking data getting better. This means purchase application data got better. Bond yields started to fall down. And what's occurred is demand has stabilized. And we actually just had one of the biggest month-to-month sales prints ever recorded in U.S. history. I will say that again. We literally had one of the biggest month-to-month sales prints ever recorded in history. And something I've talked about for a while, that when you have a waterfall dive in demand like we saw, uh, similar to something like we saw in COVID, but COVID was just behavior stopped. Here, demand just fell because mortgage rates spiked so much so fast that everybody just kind of said, whoa, right? So when rates started to fall, some of those people just said, oh, hey, listen, we're, we're good to go. And that created this unique spike in uh, existing home sales. And it's not like the COVID-19 recovery where we're just coming back and going back to the uh, pre-cycle uh, highs in data. We just found a stabilization point. Purchase application got better. Mortgage rates fell. And we're just working from there. And that's what the weekly tracker does is it gives people an idea of what's happening now and how it should impact the future. And then, of course, with Altos Research, we have the weekly inventory data. So we have all this, all the single family data ahead of what the NAR reports at the existing home sale. So we track when does seasonal bottom in inventory happens. Traditionally, it's like January is it, the bottom, and then we rise. Not the case post-2020, you know, uh, both uh, 2021, 2022, and now 2023, we have bottomed out in March and April. We're still technically trying to find the seasonal bottom in inventory in April, but uh I've always said that inventory is a function of demand, right? When somebody lists their home, 75 to 82% of the times they buy another one. So when new listings data picks up uh, or we see some growth, that means that person listing that home thinks, okay, wherever rates are, 
I'm good to go. I'll sell my house and buy another one. Uh, and the new listings data, unfortunately, is trending at all-time lows, but it's back to its normal seasonal uh, demand curve where it kind of rises up to July, June or July, and then it fades out for the rest of the year. So that's a positive in the sense uh, we're, we're, we're getting some normalcy. And as long as forward-looking data looks good, housing has already found a stabilization period, and we take it from there. And of course, so much of it is the 10-year yield and mortgage rates. That, you know, whenever the 10-year yield goes up, mortgage rates go up, the demand data gets weaker. When it falls down, it gets better. So we're trying to find that equilibrium between sales, the 10-year yield, mortgage rates, purchase application data. And that's why I've always believed tracking weekly data is very critical for housing. It's not like other sectors. Uh, you, every single day, something happens in the economy that can move that uh, data line weekly. Yeah, and Real Trends also features Mike Simonson's um, weekly uh, housing report on pricing inventory and that as well. So we kind of have a double Mike whammy has of a information. Wealth, yeah, Mike has so much good information and data. I mean, it literally should be mandatory for every real estate agent to have his data because you know it, it it clears up so much conviction and it gives so much precise detail of what's going on. So uh, it's a, it's a very, it's a very lovely set of multiple data lines that I enjoy. (laughs) So I want to talk mortgage rates. Um, I just got an email from like a study that John Burns consulting did that said 5.5% is the magic number for the housing market. Um, What say you? Well, what we saw last year is that when mortgage rates got to around 5% or five to five, five and a half percent, the data stabilized quickly. The only problem was there for like a week or two. And then bond yields shot up and mortgage rates went to 7.37%. What I've seen in the data this year is that mortgage rates getting towards 6% stabilized the market. However, the headline mortgage rate that we see every single day might not be the final mortgage rate people are getting. Uh, uh, when they buy the home because people are buying down rates, you know, sellers concessions, you know, I know the builders are doing this uh, in a very big fashion. So definitely we, the closer we get to six, you know, a lot of people get in the five and a half. And if we get back to the 5% level, definitely for sure. So uh, the fact that housing stabilized with rates between six to six and a half percent, you know, uh, uh, is, is a positive sign for the future. Because if mortgage, you know, the spreads get better before between the 10-year yield and 30-year mortgage rates, mortgage rates should be five and a quarter today, right? If it was if it was like in the previous. So that really changes a lot of the dynamics for housing by itself. But if bond yields start to go down, one, one of the things I've always said is housing is disproportionately impacted by rates. So when people think, well, if there's a recession and mortgage rates go down, that'll be bad. No. And why is it the case? It's because majority of people are always working right so during the covid-19 recovery when i was telling people hey we're going to we're going to have a nice sharp recovery they're like how do you think that there's 20 to 30 million people unemployed you forgot about the 133 million people working right and they just benefited from the lower mortgage rates and typically home buyers their income brackets are usually the most employed in any recession so it's renters that actually have the highest unemployment rates now we have over 155 million people working and if mortgage rates go down lower, again, it's it, it's very simple. When we look at the data, mortgage rates going higher, bad for housing, lower, uh, good. A lot of people confuse this from the housing bubble crash years. They keep on telling me, well, during the housing crash years, 
uh, mortgage rates fell, it didn't matter. That's because credit was getting super tight, right? The credit boom to credit bust, a lot of that is was was facilitated by the availability of credit and credit crashing. A lot of my work for Housing Wire is that we can't really have a credit crunch in housing because Freddie and Fannie are publicly traded companies that can't really shut down because their stock prices are down. And you know we've never recovered the credit availability index in America never recovered back to pre-COVID levels, and we had the most originations in in the, you know in recent history people uh, buying homes and refinancing. So don't worry about credit getting too tight, but uh, definitely mortgage rates falling a, a positive because most. Home buyers, home sellers who become buyers, they will, you know, be able to benefit from the lower cost of shelter. And so, talk to me about what you found in the housing market tracker this week. Um, I, you, it looks like mortgage rates fell last week um, as the ten-year yield broke lower. So, talk to me a little bit about. Yes. So, uh, this morning when we got the purchase application data, we saw nine percent uh, uh, week-to-week growth, and uh, mortgage rates fell. Uh, uh, last week. And, you know, the peak was about 710 recently. We got all the way down to 6.16. So from the recent peak, it almost fell 1%. Uh, and then again, uh, pricing has gotten worse the last few days. So we'll, I'll be curious to see what the data looks like next week. But mortgage rates fell, purchase application data rose. New listings data is still trending at all-time lows. So we're in April, right? We only have a few more months left before the seasonality of this. So there's no, of course, there's no super spike of supply. And uh, active listings rose just a little bit, 823 single-family homes. That's it. Uh, so I'm hoping that April is the month where we get the seasonal bottom in inventory and we get more supply. I'm a very pro supply person, more choices. Good, right? Less choices with people bidding bad, not a good thing. So I am, I, I, I always get giddy and excited when I see, okay, here we go. We get the seasonal inventory push. And then, uh, then, and it also tells me more people are confident about selling their homes and buying another one. So the tracker hopefully gave me some clues that maybe April, this is it, right? This will be like 2021 where we saw the seasonal bottom in uh, April and we just take it from there. And if mortgage rates go lower, positive for the housing market, we're working from a very low base. Uh, and of course, supply is nothing like what we saw in 2008, right? We saw the 2005 to seven spike. If we take the NAR data, active listings were 2.5 million in, two, in, in uh, 2005. It spiked up to 4 million in 2007. We are still under a million today. Even though sales got to 2007 levels, we are well below what we saw even in the previous expansion. So this is the housing market we're in. Uh, I, you know, I'm a person who doesn't believe in the mortgage rate lockdown premise. I believe in the credit channels in America from the early part of the century to now explains a lot of this. And that is something that I will be presenting at the uh, uh, Gathering of Eagles event uh, uh, in Austin, because I'm going to I'm going to give my whole little dissertation about what's really going on in housing in this century. And hopefully people can understand why inventory has been trending lower and lower for years. And even when we have the biggest sales decline in history in one year, not too much inventory was created. Yeah, definitely. And and why don't you give us just like a little sneak preview of that? Um, you know, I, I hear a lot of different things. One of them is that, um, you know, a lot of homeowners have really low rates and don't want to leave because of that. But people have to move for a variety of different reasons. So talk to me. Yes. Give us a little sneak peek about what's keeping inventory low. 
So I think the confusion has always been in the year 2000, we had 2 million active listings. In the year 2005, we had 2.5. So during the housing bubble years, inventory was growing. So people just naturally think, well, if rates go lower, more inventory will come. That was because the credit boom back then, the exotic loan debt structures, people didn't have to worry about rates. Everybody could list their homes and they can purchase another house easily. After 2010, everything changed in housing. So mortgage rates were between five to three and a quarter percent in the previous expansion. When mortgage rates fell from 5% to three, three and a quarter, it didn't create more inventory, didn't do anything. Inventory went down a little bit. During the you know, uh, COVID-19, when rates fell, didn't create more inventory. Rates went down, demand picked up. We, people have been living in their homes longer and longer from 1985 to 2007. It was between five to seven years. From 2008 to 2023, 11 to 13 years. Some people, or parts of the country, it's 15 to 18 years. I've lived in my home for 19 years. So the turnover in housing is much different. And another factor is actually one of the first few art, uh, first articles I wrote for Housing Wire uh, before COVID hit us is, you know, back in 1975, a median square foot of a home is 1,500. In 2014, it got to 2,700. We were building bigger and bigger homes while our family sizes were getting smaller and smaller. So the product that we have for a lot of people is suffice for a family of four. So it's it, it, you don't need to move as much. Uh, of course, if you have an older, smaller, like a condo or a very small homes, you have more kids, of course, you need something bigger. And we always get sellers every single year. It's just not as much as we it used to be. So naturally, slowly, Inventory has been falling for pretty much like 10 years. Uh, the only time we get inventory growth is when demand gets really weak. 2014 was a good example. We got inventory growth then, only 200,000 homes. Uh, even last year, working from the lowest levels ever, I mean, not not too much, a couple hundred thousand homes. I mean, with the biggest collapse in sales because homeowners are doing really well. I mean, and, and in an inflationary environment, this is the key. What's the best hedge? in the world against inflation, it's the American 30-year fixed mortgage, right? Your your housing costs stay low. It's fixed debt. Your wages rise faster during an inflationary period. So not only were you doing great before COVID, you got even better, you know? So in this environment, people don't just make something happen to make their financial situation worse. I mean, the homeowners are doing really good. So you have to have a very valid reason to move. And uh, with the unemployment rate still below 4% and uh, wages still rising above what we saw in the previous census, homeowners are doing great. It's like, I mean, it, it's such a positive story in America uh, for that. And it's been so much of my work over the years about credit channels are different. And mm. here we have this really inflationary period and the homeowners are like, we're doing great. Stock traders, on the other hand, not so much. They're always on leverage. Homeowners, not the case. Yeah. So you did a um, kind of a preview of 2023, your predictions, and we're three and a half um, months into it. You did that, I think, at the end of November for Real Trending for the podcast. Um, so we're three and a half months into 2023. So what surprises have you seen in the housing market? N number one, the... New listings data never really got any traction. Uh, and I was hoping early on in the year, you know, while the data was somewhat stable compared to 21 to 2022 data, uh, as rates were falling, I was hoping we'd get more new listings and, and we haven't. Uh, we have a, I mean, it's not a huge gap, but a noticeable gap year over year. 
Uh, my 2023 forecast for rates is based on bond market channels. I said the 10 year yield will be between 3.21 and four and a quarter percent, means mortgage rates 5.75 to seven a quarter. That has stayed true the entire year, even with all the drama that we've had. So that the mortgage rates look perfectly normal to me, even with everything else. But the new listings data not showing any kind of recovery, just uh, a little bit surprising because rates have fallen. But the one good thing that I that I saw in the last week's new listings data is that a few weeks ago we had a like a, a noticeable collapse in it, and I was like, oh god, that's when mortgage rates spiked up to seven percent. Maybe people are just going, I'm 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 not selling my house above seven percent. But it's recovered, and it's hopefully one thing that gets better over over the year. People feeling more comfortable about listing their homes, selling it, and buying. So that's the, that's the one thing. Uh, surprising that we got no traction whatsoever, even though rates uh, uh, were lower. Uh, the year-over-year data with new listings data just not 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 showing any kind of growth. Success might look different this year, but it's out there for those willing to work for it. That's why 2023's Gathering of Eagles will focus on forging opportunities, the perfect chance for industry leaders to take a proactive approach to continually move the needle in their businesses and the real estate industry at large. Gathering of Eagles brings together the nation's most elite brokerage, association and team leaders, C-suite leaders, and top producing agents to grow, network, and set the pace for what's next in our industry. 2023's Gathering of Eagles is at the Omni Barton Creek Resort in the rolling hill country of Austin, Texas from June 18th to 21st. Learn more and register your spot today on the events page at realtrends.com. We can't wait to see you in Austin. Hi, everyone. This is Mark Adams with Real Trends. Real Trends is currently accepting applications for the 2023 Real Trends in Tom Ferry agent and team rankings. If you're an agent with over 40 transaction sides or 16 million in volume, or a team with over 60 transaction sides or $24 million in volume, in calendar year 2022, we want to feature you in the industry's largest and most trusted rankings program. Real Trends has partnered with the majority of the largest brands in the country to receive nominations automatically. However, we recommend you check with your broker to understand if they will be submitting your data or if you will be required to submit your data to Real Trends. Real Trends has extended our submission deadline to April 21st to give you one last opportunity to participate. Don't miss out on the chance to be featured in this year's rankings. I want to talk a little bit about generational buying. Um, what are some of the trends you're seeing there? I, I know you talked about it at Housingware Annual. I think it's been a couple of years ago. And I'm wondering um, if some of the predictions you had uh, about, I, and, and it's hard for me to remember, but I believe it was millennial buyers and, and Gen Z um, are actually coming true and what you're seeing as far as generational trends. You know, before mortgage rates rise, before mortgage rates rose, millennials were the biggest home buyers in America for many years, mm-hmm. and they naturally just you know bought more when mortgage rates started to get lower. What what I saw in the data last year that we have data for it now, once mortgage rates rose so much so fast, the younger home buyers in America that finance their home purchases. You know, they got hit the hardest. I mean, literally, existing home sales went from 6.5 million in January all the way down to 4 million. And 4 million is a very key level for me. It's really rare uh, in US history after 1996 to trend below 4, 4 million. But what occurred was that the baby boomers didn't 
you know, changed so much. Why they, you know, they, they don't finance their home purchases as much as uh, younger Americans. So the boomers actually surpassed the millennials for the first time, just because, you know, a lot, some of them buy homes with cash. They sell their house, you know, mortgage rates being at 7% wasn't that much of a big deal for them. So if they don't buy with cash, they have such low down payments or such high down payments, means such low mortgage balances that they can do it. And because of that, it, it flipped the boomers over the millennials uh, uh, because the mortgage buyer got hit. Gen Z, technically just one age group, is actually the biggest buyer right now by itself. But just because the boomers are so big and the millennials are so big, they have uh, uh, vast ages. Uh, uh, we always compare them. We forget about the middle kid always. Uh, but uh, uh, Gen X is buying homes and um, um, boomers are surpassing the millennials just because mortgage rates went up so far, which is unfortunate in the sense because we want young people to buy homes, have kids, have families. Do you know that's 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 the function of economics, and uh, uh, rates just went up too much, too fast for them. So obviously, when rates come back down, it'll be better for that group or the group that finances. And we see that in the data right now. We see it that you know after November 9th, uh, the mortgage market stabilized from its waterfall collapse, and, and you know we we see a little bit better data. But that's that's a big change. Um, from the you know years 2020 to 2024 as the biggest housing demographic patch ever, the millennials ages 28 to 33 is the biggest, but they're mortgage buyers. So when rates go up, they get hit the hardest. Yeah. Baby boomers like, hey, less competition for me, good. Yeah. Okay, I'm fine paying home with cash or putting a huge down payment. You know, get those pesky kids away from me. And our poor Gen X, my generation, <laughs> is forgotten. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm We're a Gen X person here, so yes. And uh, nobody cares. It's just like everybody is, there's a, this huge data line. There's a baby boomers and millennials, and yeah. I was like, and then I was like, wow, Gen X is actually the biggest percentage buyer, but nobody cares. Nobody cares. <laughs> so, well, final thoughts on um, the economy, the housing market moving forward, um, maybe in the next three months. Uh, my six recession red flags are up on August 5th, uh, 2022. So the one thing I'm focusing on is the uh, labor market. Uh, for rates to go really lower or or for the Federal Reserve to pivot and change their aggressive talks, I, I do believe it's, it's going to need to take uh, jobless claims to get up to about 323,000 on the four-week moving average. We're about 237,000 right now. We're moving up from the bottom. Um, went on CNBC two weeks ago and basically said the Fed doesn't care about anything, but they want their job loss recession. They're forecasting it. They're saying it all the time. We want higher unemployment rates because they believe that's the best way to fight inflation. And they're kind of stuck in the 1970s still, which is not the case. Uh, so I'm just looking at jobless claims. If that starts to deteriorate, the bond market will tend to get ahead of that mortgage rates should fall. So in a sense, that can be a, a positive story for housing. But in terms of the labor market, the Fed really wants to break the labor market and they're they're doing whatever they can to make that happen. So it's it's weird for a lot of us because we always think the Fed has a dual mandate. But in this case, they've been very consistent about needing the unemployment rate to get higher. Uh, uh, and this is why they're not – if this was any time in the previous expansion, they'd be cutting rates aggressively at this point. They're not because they believe that uh, – you know. People losing their jobs and higher supply of labor means wage growth was still going down, even though wage growth has been falling for 15 months. Uh, they, they're they so petrified of the 70s entrenched inflation that they, they really feel more comfortable if the unemployment rate was higher. So what would you do? 
if you were me, I would stop raising rates a while ago because <laughs> I I thought the Federal Reserve made it clear they were tracking three, six, 12 months core PCE and they forecast that to go down. So I was like, okay, I'm on board with that. And then they changed everything. <laughs> and then they said, hey, the credit market is fine. Oh, then we have a banking crisis. So they're, they're, they've, I've completely lost faith in them. They had an original plan that I thought was good last year. And for some reason, they deviated from that. And now everything they say is really confusing. They'll say, credit's not getting tighter. Oh, all the indexes showing credit's getting tighter. We don't want a job loss recession, but I'm forecasting one anyway. Uh, so uh, the Federal Reserve is complete. This is what happens when you're not sure of yourself and you have different players in your team, not sure what the other people are saying. So they, they have these really conflicting messages that uh, I tend to make fun of. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I religiously have written why we do not have 1970s inflation or spiraling wage. You know, that was a big thing. Wages will get out of control. Wage growth has been falling for 15 months in the tightest labor market we've seen in decades. You know, the 70s had very unique things. The 1970s housing was booming then. Rental inflation was taking off uh, twice. Uh, uh, we're about to take a rental inflation three-hour tour for 12 months. That growth rate is going to start slowing down on the CPI data. Uh, and it's going to really put another clamp down on anybody who thinks this is the seventies again. So I, 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 I would have done things differently, but I was going with them up until the last few months, they just changed their talking points and they're just all over the place. So, um, in fact, one of them, even Mester even said, the fed member said, I hope we don't raise rates high enough to break something. Hello, <laughs> you had a national emergency lending facility over a weekend. The banks were, mid-tier banks are in crisis. They're talking about credit getting tighter. What are you talking about? So it's the Federal Reserve. So it is what it is. We just deal with it and try to <laughs> parse or make sense of the things they say. Well, that triggers a, a question I do have about the, you know, SVB and, and the, the um, community banks. You know, what do you see? How do you see that Im- impacting housing if at all. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of different chatter about that becoming, you know, systemic and basically community banks are all going to fail. So, well, they, 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 there's no more deposits leaving the banking system right now. So they've calmed that down. Uh, the concern for the economy is that banking credit will tight, especially for small uh, mid-tier banks. The housing market, which I actually recently wrote an article about, uh, housing getting their credit tight is is not going to be an issue because Freddie and Fannie are public are not publicly traded companies, so they're in conservatorship still. So they are in FHA, VA. Majority of all loans either insured or bought are from government agencies, so they don't have the same stress as a, a, a banking system would have. So regarding housing, credit should flow fine. Uh, of course. We have uh, a lot of mortgage companies that are that are in stress, but as long as the government agencies are, you know, buying and insuring the the loans, you you'll still have a functioning system. However, any local economy that's tied to a mid tier bank that needs that kind of lending, that credit is going to tighten up even more and more, which makes uh, restrictions maybe for buying land or buying equipment to help you build them. Stuff like that can can get impacted, but nothing like the systemic consumer balance sheets being destroyed and all the lenders going under and nobody, you know, we don't have that kind of uh, a credit system anymore. Uh, If Freddie and Fannie were publicly traded companies, I might have a totally different take, but they're not. So we should be fine there tied to regional banks. And then of course, down the line, 
you know, uh, commercial lending, you know, office spaces and malls, that's about like, you know, 16% of all commercial loans out there. You'll see some losses in there and some more credit tightening, but uh, uh, the commercial is the commercial industry is like hotels and lodges stuff. There's, there's a lot, lot more there than just office space, which is uh, feeling the stress of work from home. So local economies can get hit. National uh, lending facilities will still be functional. Uh, as the government will be there. Well, Logan, thank you so much for joining the Real Trending Podcast. It's always fun to talk to you and get your take on the economy and housing. So thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to Real Trending. If you haven't already, we'd love it if you'd take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. And we will see you next week with more news and insights.